hello, welcome to a very special live recording of BZ Listening. My name is BZ Douglas, Brian Douglas, as I was called at birth, and then BZ was thrown at me as a nickname, and I said, I will take it. Um, I'm an independent journalist based in Cleveland, Ohio, and today I am talking about... Um, <laughs> Hello, Sarah. Sarah Olson's popping in the chat. She's a, a friend of mine uh, who I'm, I'm really happy to know. She, I actually encountered her through the Tony Viola uh, investigation. She's someone who has worked with wrongfully convicted prisoners for the last uh, 15 years and has been a fantastic ally to discover in, in this investigation. So uh, how did this story come to be? Well, I've recently realized that if I have a brand or a, uh, an approach to journalism that maybe makes me unique. It's the fact that uh, I will take randos on the internet seriously who are largely ig completely ignored by the press. And that actually goes back to my very, very first story, uh, which was the uh, about a shady organizer who was pretending to have a relationship with Samaria Rice. And I found out about that one through a, a Reddit comment and reached out to the, the poster and asked for more details and ended up working the story. So that's, you know, that's where I started there. And this one, this story about Dan Casares started in very much the same way. Um, so one of the first things I did when I decided I was going to set out to learn this trade by doing it uh, after I published that first article was, well, I initially freaked out a little bit. I'm like, okay, that story came to me almost like packaged up in a bow. It, I knew exactly what to work and what, what everything was. And once that was out and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I was like, well, how do I find stories? And initially the thing that made uh, the most sense to me was, you know, it's the summer of George Floyd just get out there and and cover as many of the the rolling protests that were going on. And when I went to cover the BLM Cleveland Fourth uh, of July protest, that was where I first learned about the People's Archive of Police Violence in Cleveland. BLM had invited them to speak, and I was just immediately uh, enthralled with the mission that they had. And so uh, I asked them to, if they'd come on, do an interview with me for the podcast. And in preparation for that interview, I took in just about everything I could on the archive, which is, is fantastic. One of, the, one of the best things uh, they, they have put out there is a, a People's Tribunal on Police Violence that took place back in 2015. So um, after interviewing them, uh, I kept in close touch and actually said, hey, if you guys, I think you guys could probably use a better website. And they, they pretty, pretty quickly agreed. They weren't thrilled with the, um, the platform they, they had been uh, recommended. So um, I was working with them to build their website and keeping in close touch. And then in uh, January, I got a... Uh, phone call from Keith Wilson, who is one of the uh, administrators of the People's Archive, and he pointed me towards an entry that came in that was simply titled Prosecutorial Misconduct. And that entry uh, ultimately learned came from a woman named Kelly Patrick. And she, uh, the archive had reached out to her because she kept a lot of details vague in her post as far as like the who, who was the prosecutor that she was making these allegations against and so forth. So when I got her on the phone, um, that's when I learned that the, the prosecutor in question was Dan Casares. And that name lit up in my head because I was aware of, uh, I was following the Desmond Franklin shooting. He was a gentleman that was killed by an off-duty police officer in, in sort of a really reckless and wild drive. They were driving alongside each other, and the off-duty police officer was firing into Desmond's car and killed him. And so the special prosecutor that had been assigned to investigate and present that case to a grand jury was Dan Casares. So um, initially, I was just like, well, I want to I follow up and find out what you know, who is this guy is, and if he's, he's a shady prosecutor, then how, um, you know, how should we consider 
the job he was doing um, based on these allegations. So when I talked to Kelly, um, her story was very like disturbing and she was very uh, clear and coherent about the, you know, this is what happened. You know, there was nothing uh, um, about her demeanor that gave me any, you know, and, you know, just the, the initial gut feeling of talking to someone like this is, is this someone to take seriously or someone who's just kind of like, you know, wildly making accusations and is a little out there. No, didn't, didn't get any resident, any, any hesitance about uh, taking her seriously on a, on initial contact. And so after the phone call, I um, started Googling Dan Casares and the only instance of anything, you know, that came up in the results that was derogatory was a website called freetonyviola.com. And I also found, you know, their reference Kelly's story. And that's when I discovered, you know, Kelly had actually, um, discovered Viola's site ahead of time, like before I knew about it. And that, and it was when she found out about Tony Viola's accusations uh, towards Dan Casares' behavior as a prosecutor, that's what's actually prompted Kelly to come forward with her story and, and start putting it out there on, on a blog and the uh, People's Archive of Police Violence. So then when I found that, I was like, um, I need to get in touch with Tony, uh, find out what this story was. <clears throat> and it immediately shocked me to, to the core. And I got to tell you, like my first instinct was probably what a lot of people's would be is like, okay, this is, this is pretty huge. How, why has no one covered this? And, you know, and there's, a lot of skepticism that comes with that because I, I would just wasn't willing to believe as a journalist that I'd stumbled upon something that, you know, as far as someone looking for a big story, this one was well, too bad to be true in my mind. And, but I, I told Tony uh, that the same thing I've told a lot of people once my, my coverage started getting out there, and people have reached out to me and, and said, hey, you seem like someone who's covering stories in, in, in a very um, forceful and direct way and, and, and tackling police abuse and prosecutorial misconduct and things like that. So I've had a steady stream of people reaching out to me starting in, since um, I would say about a year ago. And so I told Tony what I have been telling a lot of people is like, look, I'm just one guy. I have a YouTube channel. I have a podcast. I'm grinding out, building an audience one person at a time. So even if I work your story, I'm not sure how much attention it'll get. But I can tell you that I will listen and I will keep I will pay attention to your story. And when I see an opening and an opportunity to work it, um, I will be. I will be on it, but, uh, and there's sadly quite a few people that I've are in this queue right now that I'm, I'm excited to work on their stories and, and also, you know, dreading the pits of awful that you have to wade into with these anyway. So when I, when I first encountered Tony, I was really in the weeds of getting state of injustice, the very first episode launched polished all the all the things that had to be done once we had an episode i mean i think that was about the time i was figuring out what to even call the series and how it was going to be put out there and what the plans were so uh that took up most of my year uh, as far as where my attention could lie that and, and other more um urgent issues and i know you know tony's been dealing with house arrest and and, his, and it's you know i i felt a fair amount of, of urgency and, and really looking into his thing. But there were certainly other stories that kept coming up that I was like, oh, I really need to cover this now because getting something out now could actually have an impact, and, you know, whether, especially when, you know, we were in the middle of uh, issue 24 and then there was a lot of uh, developments in the Vincent Belmonte case in the East Cleveland police department that I was tracking. So a lot of things were pulling my attention away that kept me from really working this story. And the, a big turning point for me where I was like, okay, I need to 
really sink my teeth into this and, and take it seriously is when I saw, uh, when Tony informed me that he was bringing a case into either the eighth or 10th uh, court of appeal, uh, Ohio court of appeals. Uh, he was filing legis uh, he was filing lawsuits that were uh, related to public records and sunshine laws, because one of the aspects of this case that I mentioned in the story, but don't go into great detail, is the fact that Dan Casares was utilizing a private Yahoo account to um, con uh, correspond with with uh, witnesses in cases. And so Tony was trying to shine a light on the fact that, like, you know, this aspect of what happened in his case uh, is relevant to courts um, that deal with with those issues. So. When I saw that he was putting out his allegations on the record in court, which if he was fabricating these would open him up to some serious liability and perjury and things like that. So um, that's when I, I decided to, well, at the very least, I'm going to try and amplify what Viola has put out into the courts. And so I recall uh, watching the whole um <laughs> Yeah, who uses a Yahoo anymore? Exactly. Uh, Mustache Bob chiming in here with a little snark. Um, so but what I decided to do at that point is I was just going to watch his whole hearing, uh, parse it out into bullet points of what all the points he made and then the rebuttals that came from the defense attorney representing the uh, Ohio uh, Assistant Attorney General's office and just put it out there and say, oh, I'm going to lie. Here's a tweet thread of everything that was said at this trial, just so, you know, I'm kind of logging things a bit. And what really disturbed me about uh, the, the defense that the state put up against Tony's ac uh, accusations was they were really just weren't addressing any of the improprieties. They we're sticking to like, well, we're not going to talk about any of that. We just want to talk about one narrow technical thing. And they just tried to focus on the fact that, well, when all this happened, Dan Casares was uh, a Cuyahoga County prosecutor. So this, this really isn't the attorney general's problem. We're just not going to even like consider any of the other evidence that was peripheral to the, the I guess, the narrow focus of, of what he was trying to address. But I do feel that their argument was wrong. And ultimately, the fact that the, the Ohio AG was just like brushing aside everything this guy said and immediately trying to pass the buck in terms of like the technical aspects of whether or not they, Casares uh, should be sanctioned or reprimanded or anything should happen for um, what he had done with regards to the Ohio Sunshine Laws. It's like, well, uh, we don't really care. Um, so that after that point was when I decided um, it was time to sit down with Tony and do a, a long deep dive interview, get the whole story down. And that interview is the centerpiece of my reporting. It's uh, where a lot of things, you know, once I had that whole story and narrative from him, then I kind of had everything I needed to go verify, confirm, and and get a sense of, you know, whether or not Tony was being truthful with me. And I have to tell you, this story's, in a lot of ways, it, it's just, it was a process of, getting to answering the question is Tony Viola not the man before me um and I'm not gonna you know and, and I don't really get into the weeds of of how much he may or may not have had some you know culpability for exploiting the you know as you know being in the real estate mortgage in industry you know how much he, you know, might have been capitalizing on all, all the shadiness that was going on at the time. But what I really did get the sense of, though, when I when I um, understood the the case against him that was prevent, presented by the state, it just seemed absolutely ludicrous because what they were essentially saying is that Tony, along with this uh, coterie of of shady characters, that they all were the ones who figured out some way to get one over on the banks by giving out mortgages to people with, with low income, no income, 
um, liar loans they're called, parking lot loans, where there's no money down and all these things. Um, but the what's ridiculous about that uh, premise is that at most, anyone who was doing that was simply guilty of following the rules that the Fed allowed, that the banks were, um, uh, they had set up these rules. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a point of personal regret for me that I, I didn't see coming my decision to become a journalist long, long ago, that it wasn't some nascent ambition I had, because I swear to God, my, my years, uh, prior to this, I was a graphic designer and um, programmer in, in high-level advertising agencies. And I worked on, at one place, a presentation that uh, we had been hired to, like, you know, do this, like, fancy PowerPoint thing. And, or, and it's actually in Flash, if you, any of y'all remember that. And one of the slides I had to program, and at the time I was just like, you know, okay, what do I have to do? That? Okay, I don't care. I'm not thinking about it. But I did, uh, I do remember this slide I built where I had to have this little uh, dial that you could click and pull up and down. And that was attached. It was basically representative of uh, a person's APR score. And then what it had to do is as the APR, or as not the APR score, their credit score. So as you pull this lever down the uh, and lower the person's credit score, there had to be a course. There was another little bar graph and it represented the APR, the interest rate that could be applied to those mortgages. And it had to be inversely proportional. So as the credit score went down, that APR went up. And this is the kind of thing where, you know, this was the banks basically planning out like, hey, we, this is a, a, you know, a lucrative market we can get into. And it had to do with, you know, it's probably a whole other podcast to get into the mechanics of the 2008 financial crisis. If you aren't, um, if you never fully acquainted yourself with them, but it, in essence, um, the banks wanted a lot of mortgages with high interest rates to get out there so they could throw them into these bundled financial instruments called uh, CDOs, uh, collateralized debt obligations. So it's this big box of investments and some of it's good, but a lot of it is trash like these mortgage things. And, but the, the CDOs would obfuscate to a degree what was in them. And so it was this whole house of cards the banks set up and they at the ground level were incentivizing mortgage agents from just go out there, give mortgages to everyone you can. If you get a mortgage, uh, if you get someone signed up for a $100,000 mortgage or whatever, you know, you were making a 9% commission on that. Um, so it was the mortgage agents who were incentivized and who were the ones that, if anything, were the scammers on the ground level. Now, it's not to say that real estate agents couldn't have been in cahoots with them. But when it comes to uh, Viola, uh, he speaks about in his interview the fact that it's like he started to see these sh things going on and had his told his company and the people he worked with, like, let's stay the hell out of this. And, and another thing that really came up over the course of thinking about this and, and, and like, well, I'm like, is Tony just a damn good salesman selling me on, on his innocence and, and uh, culpability and, and decency? And so to sort of square that or, you know, it caused me to just think deeply about who's the kind of person that would be, you know, that greedy, that, um, uh, I don't know, uh, unscrupulous to, to see this like whole, the shady operation going on, want to jump on board with it. And the type of real estate agent and the agency that Tony seemed to be running and the way he operated his business based on people who had worked with him for a long time. And he had been in the real estate in industry a long time before this fly by night, get rich quick scheme was set in motion by the banks. And so it didn't really square with me on a personal level that, that Tony was the type of person who would be that, like I said, unscrupulous and greedy. I would, I would expect that sort of behavior from the type of real estate agent who built his business by 
making deals with other, you know, like, like greasing wheels with shady politicians in order to get, you know, real estate things happening and this and that. Uh, Tony, from the beginning, really just what he says he loves about what he loved about real estate was helping people get into homes, um, improving the city he lived in. And, and that's not the kind of person in my mind that's, that would jump on board with this, that would be a big part of it. Um, and ultimately, if I have a working theory of this whole case, uh, something when I say working theory, obviously it's a theory. It's not something I can prove. So, um, but what it looks like to me is like the purpose of this mortgage task, mortgage fraud task force was to put a bunch of heads on spikes so that in the media, people could think that something was happening and the head, but the heads that they should have put on spikes were financial regulators bank officials, um, and certainly you know, mortgage companies that were colluding with these banks. And what's more, the, uh, calling out the fact that like banks had set up these third-party um, lending agents that sort of gave them plausible deniability that they were directly connected to a lot of this stuff. Uh, again, this isn't; these aren't weeds that I have fully gone into, but at a glance, this is my working theory. So, as I said, this was really like a process of, of coming to just be like, okay, how, how is this story not out there? What the hell am I missing um, that anyone else who's looked at this has seen and passed? Because Tony uh, told me that during the course you know, of, of his trying to get the word out there about his innocence, he had spoken to local reporters, national reporters, um, that were aware of his story and looked into it. Um, and they essentially were scared off by the type of intimidation that Casares and his lawyers would throw out, um, hesitancy by editors to piss off the prosecutor's office because then they lose that sweet, sweet access to be basically arms of the state and show up when there are raids, such as there were in Tony Viola's case. The press was there before the um the the actual uh the SWAT teams arrived and things like that according to one witness I spoke to so um and I'm not interested in that kind of access I don't care uh, to if the prosecutor is not going to call me to let me know when they're planning to raid a place or or whatever as far as I'm concerned um that's them manipulating the press not them uh working with the press in a way that's in the public interest so um so with tony then uh I, yeah as i said like i i became aware of like they were press looking into this and they were hesitant to to write anything and and i was hearing from tony that like well they're scared of the prosecutor this and that but there's always there, there had been that just niggling thing in my head that i was missing something that a lot of other people were and so this gets to actually where the turning point for me on this where I was just like, no, I believe Tony, I believe Kelly, and um, I absolutely believe that a prosecutor could and would abuse their power in a, you know, this badly in a state like this, where if you go looking at the, the just stories of, of shady prosecutors, especially in this area, they're, they're, you're just going to find... Um, jaw-dropping tail after jaw-dropping tail uh especially like you know there was just one over in um honing county this woman dawn cantala mesa and uh local uh publication out there mahoning matters i think the the journalist was justin dennis i might be getting that name wrong but he had an excellent rundown of all these cases that she did the shady on and all that happened was they moved her from mahoning county to ashtabula county and that's a wild thing I'm, I'm seeing uh, with the police and with, uh, yeah, these prosecutors. It's kind of a thing where they, they move them around when they get in trouble, sort of the same way the Catholic Church would with priests. So, um, so like I said, there, it, was, it wasn't hard for me to look at the landscape of corruption and think that it was possible this could be going on. And the more I spoke with T Kelly and, and Tony and worked with them, and Tony was very uh open to hard questions 
when I was digging into this. I'm like, well, what about this aspect, Tony? And he, you know, would point me towards um, evidence that would, you know, or, or explanations of things that, that answered my questions. And, and he wasn't afraid of um, that's why Tony's one of his best advocates. He just knows his case and 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 um, he'll point you towards documentation that will confirm what he's saying. So um, as far as buttoning up, learning about the press being aware of this story, the last instance of discovering that is really what knocked me over to be like all in on the story. And that's when I started going full speed ahead with writing an article and planning to release it, release it. Uh, and that's when I spoke with a local reporter out of Youngstown who, um, and just so everyone understands, the reason I am not naming names on the media that I'm aware of, the press, who did not get a piece out about this story, even though they'd been tracking it, I'm playing nice for now. I'm putting all of the information I have found out there in the hope that the press will dig in to so many other <laughs> roads of, of, of just absolutely uh, uh, corrupt and dirty um, aspects that, that, that I didn't if I, I maybe I touch on them in my piece a little bit or I don't at all, but there, there's a lot more to dig into here. And honestly, I'm just I'm, I'm right now. I'm just one guy. I got a YouTube channel and a Twitter and <laughs> I don't have a big platform to push things out there. But um, I am not the kind of journalist that's looking to keep stuff to myself. If anything, you know, I want to see more of, you know, more solidarity amongst actual, you know, journalists who want to do good work and who, who really care and aren't sort of looking at every story as just a, a career stepping stone or something to look at, you know, throw a piece out and walk away from. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know how much it differentiates myself from any other journalist to say, you know, like, I, I can't not give a fuck about the stories I cover. It's kind of like the core requisite for, for getting into a story because, you know, there's so much work in it. And, and it's not hard for me to find stories that really, that really move me, agitate me, enrage me. And this was by far one of the most enraging and, and disturbing and upsetting stories that I'd come across. And the, the other big thing that helped, um, oh, I, you know, and let me get back to, you're getting a full improvised look into my ADHD brain with this, this chat. So, um, the other thing, uh, just to button up what I was saying about the, the media is I spoke with a reporter in uh, Youngstown who told me she's been looking at Tony's case for a year and had actually, you know, done some calls and follow up. And she still had not, you know, I was again, I got this when I got on this call, I was like, OK, here it comes. She's going to tell me something like, well, did you know this thing that completely undermines Viola's story or, you know, this aspect of the case that he's just completely not mentioning that, that make casts everything in a different light or whatever. No, no, none of that. In fact, um, that's when I learned, you know, what it's like when you try and get comment from Casares. Uh, won't go on the record and, and you'll get a lot of uh, threats to, your career or your station or your publication. So that was when I just realized like, yeah, I think I need just go all in on this story, put it out there. And, and in a way that's just saying, I do think that Viola and Kelly have credible allegations. And I absolutely do think it's possible that a prosecutor could get away with these sorts of things in the, the climate that is Ohio. And the other uh, really important aspect to pushing me over that edge in, in reporting this story is, um, and if you haven't read it, uh, you, can, you can find it at bzdouglas.substack.com. And the most tragic aspect of the story, the one that really, um, in addition to, you know, wanting to call out a bad prosecutor 
and wanting to vindicate an innocent person and wanting Kelly Patrick to get some justice for the obstruction of justice that she suffered at the hands of Dan Casares um, is the story of Dawn Pacella. Dawn was a office manager who worked for the mortgage fraud task force that Casares and U.S. Attorney Mark Bennett were heading up out of Cuyahoga County. And during the course of Tony's federal trial, she saw evidence mishandled, suppressed, and tampered with. She was asked, despite her not being a professional investigator at all, she was, I don't know if she was asked or, you know, it was basically like insisted upon uh, her to pretend to be a legal grad student, go hang out with Tony Viola at uh, legal fundraisers that were his friends were putting together and try and find out what his defense strategy was, all while wearing a wire. This is completely, you know, everyone I've, I've I asked this uh, about, like, have you ever heard anything about this? What's this? Is this a thing that happens? Is this OK? And no, it's it's absolutely not. It And it's shocking. It was shocking to everyone else as it was to me. And that was comforting to find out, like, oh, this isn't supposed to be normal or OK. So Dawn uh, did all, she saw these things, she helped them spy on Viola and held out hope that, you know, that truth would prevail and Viola would not be convicted. That turned out not to be the case. And after he was convicted, uh, Dawn uh, went and met with Tony and she confessed to him and told him that she hated everything she had done that she wanted to help vindicate him because he was about to be tried at the state level for all the exact same charges, which is another thing that most, you know, people don't understand. Like, that's kind of huge. You know who we did that to? Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. He got tried in both federal and state. Um, you know, like that's an that's indicative of like, you know, someone who's just really, you know, deserves not one, but two books thrown at him. So he was awaiting sentencing for the federal and um, hadn't started the state trial yet when, when Dawn approached him. And she told him, look, you need to represent yourself because you will not find an attorney that is um, going to be able to resist the pressure or, and this is a really disturbing thing I've discovered in my coverage uh, and talking with a lot of people around here who are dealing with wrongful convictions or fighting the system. It is crazy hard to find a defense lawyer that you can trust around here because there is such an aura or an atmosphere of go along to get along. It seems that there are um, so many criminal uh, defense attorneys that are just far more concerned about their career when it comes to how they manage their clients' cases and wanting to play nice with the prosecutors and get get plea bargains and get get things done. Or I think in some cases they're outright colluding with like the the prosecution in order to you know just make things go down and make things go smooth and trade some favors and uh, and and some political. Um, clout down the line. I, I, you know, there's a lot of speculation I'm throwing out here, but I can tell you that person after person after person has told me shocking stories of how they did not receive a vigorous defense from their defense counsel. And that is absolutely the case in Tony Viola's uh, federal trial. So Viola, uh, Viola was told by Don, you got to represent yourself. However, I'm going to help you. And what she did was, you know, grind out every single count providing him with the exculpatory evidence that was suppressed in the federal trial. And it sounds like this was a pretty fun thing to watch because Casares would step up and, 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 you know, present his case thinking Tony didn't have certain documents. And then Tony would just turn around and hand his ass to him like, Oh yeah, well uh, I have this right here. It says I'm not a mortgage agent. Love it. Next. And with Dawn's help, uh, preparing exhibits and his arguments, she th they he beat every single count in state court, and then uh, it was, I think, um, a pretty tense 
topic to to finally get to the point where Dawn agreed to be subpoenaed by Viola to come in and uh, testify to everything she witnessed. And the uh, as soon as she was put on the witness list, she started facing intimidation from Casares. Now it's uh, an interesting point here. If the prosecution had never wired up Dawn and sent her into Viola's uh, circle in order to, to spy on him, then it would have been pretty simple for Casares to um, try and file a motion to quash and say, you, you can't just call members of my staff in here to testify about things. You know, that, 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 that would be highly irregular, I think, in any case. But that door was allowed to be open because of the fact that <clears throat> Uh, they had they had they had basically made Dawn a part of Tony's uh, story, uh, and and breached any sort of <laughs> uh, standard protocols of behavior by by having her spy on him. So he was able to call her, and there was really nothing legally Casares could do to prevent that. Um, and that is uh, borne out by the fact that. Uh, she had FBI agents, this is according to testimony from her parents, she had FBI agents come to the house and tell her, give her a no-win ultimatum. They told her, you need to leave town before and not be here when your subpoena, uh, when, you're, when you're scheduled to testify, which opens her up to uh, arrests, fines, um, all sorts of things. You can't do that. Um, then they all, and then on top of that, they said, if you do testify, then we're going to prosecute you for violating an NDA that, um, she never claimed to have signed and her parents vouched for that as well. And so she's getting these threats and intimidation. Um, it's terrifying. She stays with her parents for a certain period of time, just because she's so rattled by this, but, um, keeps her resolve to testify and the day she was scheduled to testify she didn't appear and she was found later that day in her apartment uh dead of an accidental alcohol poisoning an accidental overdose of uh and um the circumstances under which she she died through the autopsy photos uh and another information i learned from her parents are absolutely suspicious i mean never mind the fact that someone dying you know in a way that's conveniently beneficial to a powerful person should i don't know i don't i i'll never really be one to jump to like oh what a weird coincidence <laughs> i always think that should be dug into um and when i spoke with her parents and i don't know if I, i've already mentioned this or not but that was Speaking to them was another thing that pushed me into the, okay, this needs to get out there. Um, and they had never spoken with a journalist uh, before. They'd always um, refused to take calls and, and talk about it. They were very resigned to the fact that, like, while this was tragic, but nothing's going to be done. This is a powerful prosecutor, and um, we just don't want to – we don't want to put up a fight about this because it's, you know, to a certain degree, I think – they were a bit broken by it and a bit, I would certainly think, terrified. Um, but in talking with them and convincing them that I really do give a shit about this and that my goal in reporting this is to see Casares removed from any position of power and hopefully investigated and prosecuted because it's very difficult for me to believe that if all of these allegations are true between Kelly Patrick's talking about a, a, a domestic violence and drug uh, growing operation that Casares covered up to protect his own brother. Um, and then several years later, if he engaged in all of these irregular uh, and, and unethical and, and most likely illegal tactics to win a case, why wouldn't he have kept doing that? I mean, isn't that the whole premise of, law enforcement and prison and deterrence that if you don't punish people when they do bad things then it just says to everyone else go go do the bad things it's fine um 
so speaking with them and expressing to them how, you know, what I was about, that's what let them uh, sit with an interview for me. And, and I think uh, her father was much more on board to like do this. And her mother from the beginning has been, I think, very intelligently um, concerned about what, you know, what it was to go up against these sort of people. When Dawn was considering going to Viola, she talked to her parents and asked them, you know, is, is this the right thing to do? And they both agreed that what she had seen was wrong. Her parents both agreed on that. But her mother said, I don't know if you should get involved because these, if these people did this and they must be very dangerous. And she was worried for her safety. And her mother continues to be concerned about like, you know, you know what it is to cross these people. But I think they're feeling a little bit more encouragement by the fact that this story has gotten a lot of attention since I put it out. And I think it's going to get a lot more once the holiday weekend is over. Um, and that was the most delicate and um, emotionally intense interview I've ever conducted. And it's certainly the sort of thing that, you know, as much as I might think, well, we're, what don't I know how to do the best way as a journalist and, and things you might've learned, I might've learned in, you know, taking a formal education in the, in this field. But I don't think anyone can teach you what it is to deal with families who have suffered a tragedy like that. Um, so, and at one point, uh, after I had gotten all of the information I, I needed for confirmation and, and color and additional details of what Dawn was going through, during this, um, I asked them, well, can, do you want to just tell me about who Don was as a person? Because that's one thing that's missing from this. You know, if we just look at this one thing she did and when they started telling me about how, you know, I put this in the piece, she was the kind of person who would take her on her lunch break, go and buy a dozen roses and walk around the mall and just hand them out to anybody who looked like they were having a bad day. And I, I, I started just crying and I had to take a, a moment kind of regain some composure. Um, but that all really, like I said, is, is another thing that fueled me to just go all in on this story and get it out there. So I think, you know, if you have any questions that I haven't covered or if anything's a little confused, feel free to, um, uh, chime in now i'll take uh, any listener uh comments or questions but i want to now just uh wrap things up and talk about where this story is going from here so as i said there's a there's a lot more aspects to cover and there have been some really wild developments that have have happened since i released this story um one of the biggest is um some great uh pushback on the pushback that Kelly was getting from the first time she released her story. So when I published that, uh, the same day, I got a private message from Kelly's mother, which basically told me, uh, tried to tell me or lie to me that Kelly has bipolar disorder and uh, makes grandiose claims. She just loves to be the center of attention and gets on these uh, um wild justice kicks that make no you know that are they're based in, in in unreality and boy you sure did uh step in it amplifying this crazy lady and i just wasn't buying it at all um to a certain degree you know that was just me trusting my gut i'm like i had been around i had spoken to kelly now for hours over the course of a year and i invited her into my home and she was always consistent in her story and always very, very diligent and level-headed there. And, and also it's just fuck you for saying that people who are bipolar can't experience crimes and correctly recollect them. Like just, I was immediately insulted by the premise of her message. Cause I know people with bipolar disorder. Yeah. They're, they can be some really fun people and maybe a little bit um, emotionally volatile and and, and, and and delicate on certain aspects, but they are by no means insane. And um, so uh, that's when I learned from Kelly 
about all the wild machinations going on between her mother and her ex-husband relating to um, an, an estate deal that that uh, basically it's, uh, Kelly described to me as her mother uh, worked with John to get a hold of her um, Kelly's aunt, her mother's sister's uh, estate. And so anyway, the, the epilogue to publishing the, the viola piece that was wild is I went back to go look for Kelly's mother's Facebook message and I saw that it was unsent. Cool. And then I went, uh, and of course I have a screenshot, just, you know, if you're going to do this work, the second you see something really, really uh, good or bad and it could disappear tomorrow, you get a screenshot of that shit. So got a screenshot of it, of everything she said, and along with all the YouTube comments that were coming from, uh, you know, people in Kelly's mother's circle that were attacking her in the first piece. So, you know, guys, you know, if you're if, if the if the shitheads I'm tracking are watching this, you can go delete those if you want. But I got them. Um, and then the so. That in alone of itself was very telling that was seeing this, this message deleted from her mother. But then on the YouTube video and the interview I had with Kelly and Viola that was specifically addressing those criticisms and going into the weeds of this, uh, on the YouTube video of that, Kelly Patrick's cousin jumped in and defended Kelly and basically confirmed everything had uh, Kelly had told me about how her mother and her ex-husband had worked to, you know, make sure that this estate of, of Kelly's aunt went into a, a trust that it sounds like that they're, they're basically alleging that they they're illegally like skimming from and, and, and um, all the alleged leads with that, because it's just another aspect of this case that I have not dived into fully. Um, but that was within 20, less than 24 hours of putting this thing out there. So uh, where it's going from here, I have plans to release, uh, put out a press release on Monday that I'll be working up with um, Viola and, and Patrick. I, the plan will be um, to announce, basically summarize the story a bit and uh, um, announce to the press and government officials will be sending it out to that we will be holding a press conference later in the week. I got to nail down the day. I will give a brief statement. Tony will give a brief statement. Kelly will give a brief statement. And then we will take uh, questions and and comments from the press. Um, that is where, you know, I'll kind of want to be putting out the call and making it known that um, there is a lot more in this case to dig into. Um, also demanding that Attorney General Yost go and investigate his own or that someone else in the state uh, actually assign a more independent prosecutor to look into this. I'm not really wild about the AG, you know, investigating the AG. So, um, yeah, and uh, next week I, I tentatively am going to be talking with a reporter from USA Today, uh, Daphne. I want to get her name right because I really... Uh, appreciate her work. Daphne, where is she? Um, Daphne Durrett. She was one of the authors who um, wrote an incredible piece on the retaliation that whistleblowers uh, face uh, in within the police. I, I highly recommend everyone uh, get your hands on that. Personally, I subscribed to USA Today just for that piece, just to, you know, throw some dollar votes towards them so that they, uh, you know, the 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 more corporate minded amongst that publication think, oh, this kind of work is lucrative for us to pursue. Let's do more. So a lot of... Um, a lot of things are, have been moving, and this is by far of all the stories I've put out there. I'm, I'm extremely thrilled to see that this one has gotten the most attention, and it has shown no signs of slowing down. Um, and I did uh, achieve my goal of I was like, you know, if nothing else, get a piece out there, summarizing it all as hard as I can, and let's uh, let's ruin some assholes Thanksgiving. And I, I think I did that. So. Um, with that, I, I think I've, I've said everything I had, uh, to say 
here and um, I want to appreciate, uh, I want to throw out a big, big, big thank you to everyone who has supported me as I set out to learn this trade by doing it. Um, I can't tell you how much I have grappled with imposter syndrome, thinking like, I'm, you know, who am I to be doing this? But what kept me going was always, um, as I said, the fact that I was talking to people who were completely ignored that were so appreciative that someone was taking them seriously, even if it's someone with, you know, absolutely no, no significant reach but uh, truly gave a shit and was really about doing um, hard-hitting work that seems to not happen at the local level. And this story, as much as it is about um, the endemic corruption in Ohio when it comes to law enforcement and political corruption, um, this story is also about the failures of the media. And as I said earlier, I'm playing nice right now. I am not naming names of reporters I know at local and uh, national outlets who have been aware of the story and for whatever reason did not go forward with it. This is your, this week is your chance to make it right. That is the point of this press conference that uh, we will be holding is to, you know, really make a big announcement to everybody out there, there is a lot of chum in the water. Come and let's hunt some sharks. Uh, if I don't see that, you know, the people who have been aware of the story, if I don't see them do anything on it, you're damn right I'm calling them out. Because um, the reason I'm playing nice to an extent is, like I said, to give them a chance to 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 show that they they can if they just needed someone to step, you know, plunge into the pool first before. OK, it's getting back to the shark metaphor. It's like Jaws. It's like once that one family goes into the water, then everyone's like, OK, I guess it's OK. Um, but uh, I wanted to play nice because the one thing I, I do know is that there are good reporters out there. Um, at the lower level and they want to do good work and they are stifled by uh, editors, publishers, people who are just reticent to, to go hard at things like this. Um, and, and I feel their pain and it's also why I, I have very little interest in, in relinquishing my independence. Um, the, you know, <laughs> it was, I was really enjoying um, when I reached out to Casares for comment and, and he, you know, immediately tried to spin me. And then his lawyer tried to tell me that um, I was I was going to uh, he was very concerned that I, I wasn't aware of the limits of the First Amendment or that uh, a lot of things need to be looked at harder. And it's like, OK. Um, and I got to I got to tell you the serendipity of of putting this story out in terms of a lot of things coming together was pretty wild especially um the day before i was set to publish the day i got comment from casaris and then his his attorney uh david comstock uh i had already planned uh just a meet and greet kind of hang out uh, uh get to know you uh casual night uh with peter patakos a lawyer who is uh here locally who takes on a lot of issues that relate to corruption and and um, um, and he steps up to protect a lot of people. I actually met him first when I was coming in to testify on behalf of some protesters who were being sued by a shady restaurant tour we have here in Cleveland named Bobby George. And um, so that I was just happening to go hang out and meet him for drinks with some other folks and I got the letter from Casares' lawyer as I was getting in the car to go there. And I sent it along to some friends and, and actually I sent it to, to Kelly Patrick and I said, take a, take a look at this letter. I haven't read it yet. Do you want to read it to me while I'm driving? And I was just blown away at what was said in it. I mean, outright laughing too at the fact that the, this guy was such a good lawyer. He couldn't actually figure out my accurate, my correct email, which is all over the place. Um, a domain on it that I've never even owned. Where did you come up with that, man? 
Um, so I sent this lawyer uh, that I was going to meet, Peter Pataco. So it's like sent it to him. By the time I got there, he was halfway through drafting his SmackDown response, which is just glorious and at the end of my article. So, you know, that was just some serendipity that was chef's kiss. So I think I think that's about everything I wanted to throw out in this little Im improvised podcast to uh, let my my audience know more about the uh, Tony Viola interview because I just this was a fast and furious uh, uh, effort as usual. I'm, I'm uh, you know, being a one man full <laughs> uh, pit orchestra. And um, so I had to get out the article, publish all the videos, to put on YouTube to embed in the article. And then I was like, well, I want to I want to do a podcast episode that, you know, frames all this. But at the same time, I don't have time. So I just released the Tony Viola interview uh, that, as I said, is the centerpiece of all of this. And this uh, episode for the podcast is just kind of contextualizing that, letting you know there's a lot more to this story. And there's uh, it's going to be going on and rolling out pretty big from here so again i want to thank everybody who has uh believed in me whether you are a source whether you are a friend who kicked into the patreon uh and and i i i could not have done this without having some ongoing faith and and, and encouragement from people because you know i'm very much someone who i need approval which sounds like a desperate sort of thing to say, but it doesn't mean like, oh, I will do anything so that people like me. It's more, I have trouble believing that I'm good at a thing until I have some validation from other people. Part of that is I think maybe just seeing how many people out there think they're good at a thing and just get skate on confidence and they're out there doing a terrible job. Um, so I, I, I cannot thank everyone enough for their support. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to continuing down this path. This has been such rewarding work, so much more rewarding than, you know, what I was doing in the corporate world. But um, it really has made all of the the time I spent in the, the you know, the, the cubicle coal mines of advertising, learning coding and graphic design and even paying attention to like how marketing and branding and all that shit works and bringing it all together into into this field and being able to be sort of a one-man show. And uh, while I'm proud of the fact that I can do that, I do not want to keep doing that. So if you are interested in helping me out, I am. I have a lot more people that are actually now uh, planning to, uh, re I'm gonna be talking with and, and figuring out how to delegate to them. Um, from the beginning of this journey, I really uh, was immediately resolved to, um, if I can figure out how to do this, open sourcing the process, because I want more people to realize that you don't need credentials to do this. There's, there's skills, there's processes, there's practices, um, that, you know, I've learned along the way that are very important, but at the same time, you know, uh, if you're a critical thinker and you are a good reader and you are, um, diligent and, you know, this work can be done by anyone who who really pays attention, who really gives a crap and and the skills required to do it um, as far as packaging all the things up. Uh, maybe I have some unique, you know, things there that just like not anyone's gonna be like, oh, yeah, you can do this. You just need to, you know, you just use After Effects and Premiere. Like, yeah, <laughs> obviously there's there's some skills that I can't just say anyone can do it, but I do want to encourage anyone to try and to certainly find it, like really understand how important paying attention to local issues are. You have a lot more power there and you certainly, your attention carries a lot more weight. You know, if all you do, if you're a politically, if you're a political junkie like I am and you just kind of take in the shit show, the circus that's going on at the top and you, you tweet about that and you post about that, it's, it's just kind of screaming into the clouds. Um, but if you are paying really close attention to local level shit heels, the attention you put on them carries a lot more weight. And I guarantee you that in your town, there are fantastic activists and, and, and tragic stories that are just being overlooked that you could probably help out a lot with just by paying attention or even saying, Hey, is there something I could do to help? 
Um, and one thing you can always do to help that's free and it applies to my content here, shares and likes, they are free. I don't have a big network of people who promote my stuff. I, you know, I get out there and I grind it out. When I have a story, I'm DMing everyone I can think of on Twitter. I'm texting people and I'm telling them like, take a look, look at this because, you know, just me sharing it is never going to get the job done. All right. Well, I had no plans on on what this podcast is going to be and what I was going to talk about, but I think uh, that's a solid hour and I really appreciate uh, your time and attention. And I hope everybody has a great holiday weekend and thank you for coming and listening. All right. So stay tuned, subscribe at bzdouglas.substack.com. Follow me on Twitter at bzdug and I promise you, this is a good show to come.